Amen. Good morning. So good to have you here today again. We trust that you've enjoyed a great Christmas and looking forward to enjoying a tremendous new year. Today, as we begin a new year, and as I have done in the past 20 years since I've been here, each year, I want to remind you from the Word of God why we exist as a local church and answer the question once again, why are we here? Why are we here as a local church? What is our business? And we want to see whether or not we are accomplishing our purpose as a local church. In other words, this is an annual spiritual review and evaluation. We want to do this spiritual review and evaluation of our ministry as a local church. Not based on man's criteria, but that of the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself. After all, it is his church. He made that clear when he announced the establishment of the church. Listen to his words once again. It says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Notice he says, I will build my church. It's not man's church. It doesn't belong to an organization. It belongs to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And so we'll be evaluating it from that, per from that perspective. There is a consensus today that the evangelical church, of which we are a part, have lost its direction when it comes to fulfilling its purpose for being on earth. I want you to listen to some of the leading men, uh, pastors of the church in recent years, who have now second thoughts concerning the results, the methods used by the so-called church growth movement that focuses on numbers rather than on character, where they've come up with what they call the homogenous church, where they say, if you want your church to grow, then you should have the same kind of people in that church. If you want to have a Chinese church that will grow, then only let Chinese people come to that church. If you only want black people to grow, then have a black church. If you want the, a white church to grow, then only have a white church. If you only want Koreans to grow, then have a Korean church. And so the emphasis is on numbers. But of course, that goes contrary to Scripture when God says he's bringing people of all nations together to bring about the church. People from all nations to become one, not one nation of people growing just because they are the same. And they're rethinking some of these methods now. For instance, listen to James Montgomery Boyce. He was the leading Presbyterian pastor who took over from Donald Gray Barnhouse some years ago. And just before uh, Pastor Boyce died, before the Lord called him home, this is what he said. I would like to see the beginning of a new reformation in our day. And I hope it would be, and I hope you would like to see it too, and praying for it. I hope you have become nauseated with the tawdry entertainment that passes for the true worship of God in many of our churches. And like the saints of the past, are longing for more of the deep truths of the inerrant word of God. Now, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have also heard of Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels is one of America's leading pastors. 
He probably has trained more uh, pastors in the United States and around the world than any other one individual, including Rick Warren. He has, they have helped to uh, publish or rather to promote the idea of what they call the seeker-sensitive church movement. And after 30 years of this type of ministry, he came to a conclusion that he shared with his people two or three years ago. I want to show you a clip from this, and then we'll move on from that point. Just to illustrate how leading pastors now are coming to reevaluate how they've been doing churches in the last decade or so, two decades, because of the lack of genuine disciples being developed. Crowds, but no disciples. Listen to Pastor Hybels. Hey, a few years ago, my executive pastor, Greg Hawkins, who's been just a right-hand person uh, with me for over a decade, uh, one of the smartest, godliest people I know, he comes into my office right around budget time, and uh, he said, we're about ready to allocate millions and millions of dollars in, of God's money uh, into the ministries around Willow Creek and to our partners around the country and around the world. And he said, but do you ever wonder if we're using God's money and God's resources in ways that are really achieving the mission of our church? You know, our mission is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. And I said, Greg, of course I worry about that kind of thing. I worry about it more than you do. Uh, because in addition to being a good steward, trying to be a good steward of God's money, I'm Dutch. And uh, very, very cheap. I don't waste dollars on anything, especially not ministry. And by the way, could you at South Barrington here ease up on the number of paper towels you're using when you wash? No. But... I said to Greg, you know, I think we're doing a fairly good job of uh, resource allocation around Willow. What do you want from me? And uh, he said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to survey very deeply, very comprehensively, and quite professionally. I'd like to survey our whole congregation to find out what we do around here is actually helping people to grow spiritually, and what we do around here that we may think is helping people to grow spiritually, but if we were to actually probe people, maybe they'd tell us some of the stuff isn't working that well. I said, fine, go ahead, do it. Don't spend any money on it, but <laughs> do it. So he pulled a volunteer team together of just really, really great people, and they put an amazing survey together and did this very thorough thing that got, we got thousands of responses to, the data came in, and then he and a team of people drove over to South Haven where I was doing some studying. And uh, I got the wake-up call of my adult life. Now, some of the data was wonderfully affirming of the stuff we're doing to help people grow. That actually helps people grow spiritually. Other parts of the data just ruined my day. And I told Greg and his team that they were ruining my day. And he started repeating one of his favorite lines, Bill, facts are your friends. Facts are your friends. Put the gun away. And uh, these other people said, you know, we're only the messengers. And I reminded them of an era in history where leaders killed messengers if they didn't like the, the message. And I said, in Chicago, we're still in that era. So, but that survey just rocked my world. 
It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to digest as a leader because some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars in, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things that we didn't put much money into and didn't put much staff against is stuff that our people are crying out for. It was crazy making. Let me show you just very briefly one little part of our discovery uh, in this survey that Greg did. And again, there's just tons of discoveries, but this is one little one. Um, here's a, a kind of a continuum. And uh, here's a cross. And here are people who are pre-Christian, but who are figuring out Christianity in the context of Willow Creek Community Church. Seekers, investigators, okay, that's here. These are people who are just across the line, like beginning Christians. These are growing Christians. And then these are people who are fully devoted followers of Christ as they self-describe, okay? Now, we asked one question, which was, uh, how, how helpful is Willow Creek Church being to you? In, how much help are they being to you in these various areas, when you're in these areas, uh, in these stages of your life. Okay, so if this would be like 10, we're, you know, Willow's really doing well. For our pre-Christians, remarkably, and this was like good news, they were giving us like nines, going, I'm investigating Christianity, I come to this church, I love the services, I love what's offered to me, the resources, I like how the truth of Christianity is made relevant to me, so in a way I can understand it, rated us very high. Even the new Christians, it came down a little bit, but not that much. They were like, man, you helped me get in a group, you helped me with this, you helped me with that. It was all pretty cool. All right, then we get to growing Christians, and the scores start going down. And then we get to fully devoted followers of Christ, and the scores got scarily low. And I was like, that bothers me. That really bothers me. Like, like we're not helping them that much. So I said, why don't we do some focus groups, find out what's really going on. And they said, Bill, we did that. <laughs> said, All right, you're going to tell me about that too? <laughs> We're like, yep, put the gun away. It's all right. So they said, you know, a lot of people in this category, they're saying they're not being fed, that they want more meat of the word of God. They want more serious-minded scripture taught to them. They want to be challenged more and so. And I was like, it's hard for me to hear. We give messages on weekends. We give extremely challenging messages at our midweek service. We're one of the only churches in the United States that has a midweek service, a full-blown Bible teaching session in addition to what we do on weekends. We have small groups. We have classes. We have all this stuff. And I started getting a little irritated. I was like... I'll feed those people. I'll hire some old... I'll hire some old seminary prof. I'll feed them till they barf. You know? So, you should see me in my finer moments. So, anyway, they said, hey, Bill, that's really not... That's, that's sort of the presenting thing they're saying. We think we know what's really going on. So, Greg Hawkins, again, just... Brilliant guy. He goes, Bill, we've made a mistake. 
what we should have done at about this point, when people cross the line of faith, become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people... We should have gotten people, taught them how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own because what's happening to these people, the older they get, the more they're expecting the church to feed them when, and in fact, the more mature a Christian becomes, a Christian should become more of a self-feeder. Okay? This was just mind-blowing to us, and it's caused an incredible amount of activity. Gene Apple and Randy Frazee and the South Barrington leadership team right now are working very hard on how to rethink how we coach people to full spiritual development, and they're taking this into serious consideration. What he calls self-feeders is another name for disciples, true disciples, as we'll be looking at in a moment. But it has been determined now that the reason why it took Pastor Hybels 30 years to figure this out was because rather than starting from the Bible to see what Jesus, the head of the church, had to say about the purpose of the church following what is called a church growth principle, which was developed by some of the leading professors at Fuller Theological Seminary some years ago, he began with surveying the unsaved community to find out what they liked or did not like about church services. And they got responses back from a survey. You'll find that everything that these individuals do here always depends upon a survey. They don't start from the Bible. They start with a survey of the people outside the church. And they found that such things as singing songs that was not known, no lively music, it was too, services were too formal, the services were not casual enough, there was too much preaching, they did not want to participate, only spectate, and so on. They found out from the community that this is what they liked and didn't dislike about church service. And that's how they conducted this services in order to win what he calls pre-Christians. Those, of course, are the unsaved individuals. In other words, they fitted the service to suit the unsaved. And now, although they got a large numbers of unsaved coming in, Yet, they're not fulfilling the mandate of the church, which is to make disciples, not to make converts, but to make disciples. What they failed to take into consideration was that the Bible nowhere teaches that the unsaved naturally seeks after God. It's just the opposite. Unsaved people run away from God. And so, theologically and biblically speaking, the so-called seeker-sensitive concept is contrary to the way of doing church in order to develop true disciple. It appeals, though, to the unsaved, or what Pastor Hybels called the pre-church. But be that as it may, this was an amazing, courage, courageous, and honest thing for Pastor Hybels to do, and I respect him highly for this. But don't get the, mes the message wrong here now. I don't want to misinterpret what Pastor Hybels is saying. He's not saying that the seeker-sensitive concept of church ministry has completely failed for him. In fact, he says it has been confirmed, it has been affirmed, but primarily on an entry or an evangelistic level. What his team found to be lacking 
was the full development of true, mature disciples. This has led them to develop an entirely new approach to focusing on this desired end project. And I say that is good for them because now they're focusing on how to make disciples and not how to make converts. He made one thing clear, which I commend him for doing, and is, and is my purpose for showing you the clip. We need to know what our end product is as a church and to be sure that the process we are working toward producing it will, in fact, produce the desired results, which, according to the word, is true disciples. Pastor Hybels was brave and honest enough to acknowledge that Willow Creek has failed to do this in over 30 years of ministry, in spite of the thousands of people who attend his church on a weekly basis. Many call themselves Christians, but they were not true disciples. In fact, one research said that of 11,000 people who came out to the, uh, to the uh, Sunday morning meeting, only two or 300 came out to the Wednesday night meetings. Now, of course, that percentage is true all through the church here, just like us here. We have a good number come out on Sunday morning, but then you come out for prayer or Bible study time, you have the numbers reduced because the focus is on developing of true disciples. And true discipleship is a tough course to go through, as we will see in a moment. Now, one more example of this enlightenment by a leading theologian whose resources are also being used by thousands of churches around the world, and which I also use at Talios, is Michael Patton of Reclaiming the Mind Ministry. He makes a point that when the Reformation started, uh, especially uh, with Martin Luther, that there was an emphasis on going back to the Bible. Listen to what he says, and I quote now. Uh, he says, at that time, no one read the Bible for themselves. It just wasn't available. Luther, however, knew people would only live free lives if they continually fed themselves. The same phrase that Hybels used. If they continually fed themselves the rich nutrition of the Word of God. He led a movement to bring back the Bible to the people. And Patton goes on, he says, as we enter uh, 2013, um, he says, most people even have one Bible on their phone. Bi the Bibles are all around, he says. But the Bible, although we have so many Bibles now, which is quite different from what it was when the Reformation started, we do not have it in the hearts of God's people. Most Christians today do not regularly read the Bible for themselves. Then he says, here's another concern. Over the last few decades, thousands of churches have become very attractional. The youth programs feel like Disney World. The worship set rivals any rock venue. The cool atmosphere rivals any Starbucks. The light show during worship draws in many. Yet, I th yes, he says, I think it's a place for attracting people. But here's the concern. I'm concerned if we give people a bright light show, they may not even see the light of the world. Now listen carefully to what he says. They'll come for the attraction, they'll even stay for the attraction, but they will not live for Jesus Christ. Let me remind you again of what Pastor Heibel says. He says, spiritual growth doesn't happen best by becoming dependent on elaborate church programs, but through the age-old spiritual practices of prayer, Bible reading, and relationships. And ironically, these basic disciplines do not require multi-million dollar facilities 
and hundreds of staffs to manage. Then he goes on to confess this. He says, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people, how to read the Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. That's quite a remarkable thing to be seen, being heard by leading pastors now. So what is the biblical mandate for the church? What is it that God wants us to accomplish as the church of Jesus Christ? Here's my thesis then for the rest of the message this morning and tonight. It is this. The local church must know the biblical reason for the existence as an organized body if it is to function effectively. The local church must know the biblical reasons for its existence as an organized body if it is to function effectively. Now listen carefully. As the proper understanding of the nature of the church determines the character of its functioning, in other words, for instance, since the church is indwelled by, and in fact is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it should reflect the holiness, that holiness, in the way we do things as the church. In other words, if we are going to be true to the character of the one who indwells the church, the Holy Spirit, then all of our activities must also reflect holiness. Also, because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, the church must be sure that its teaching are true to the word of God. We must, in other words, it must be true to its character. We are the pillar, we are the ground of the truth. Therefore, we should not allow any kind of heresy or false teaching in the local church. So let me repeat. As the proper understanding of its nature determines the character of its functioning, so does the proper understanding of its purpose determine the objectives, motivations, standard, and effectiveness of its functioning. And such must be authoritative and biblically, not based on man's ideologies or man's philosophy. Not only will such a standard provide the, the means by which the function, the structure, the methods and programs of a local church may be legitimately evaluated as to its basis for being a true biblical church, but it will also provide a biblical basis for formulating specific goals toward which the local church must direct its efforts and resources. Such objectives and goals can only be properly formulated if the overall purpose for the existence of the local church is clearly understood. I believe that this purpose is described, as I have showed you for many years now, in a threefold purpose in Scripture. Let's establish this once again by looking at the Word of God and how the head of the church has modeled this for us once again. The Bible seems to teach that the general or overall purpose of the church is to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. Listen to this direct command of Jesus Christ to the nucleus of the church in John 20, 21. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus passes the baton of his ministry to the church. Remember now, he said, I will build my church. Then he left. Now who's doing the building? He's still doing the building, 
but he's doing it through his body. He passes the baton on. He confirms this in John chapter 17, verse 18, as he reports to the Father concerning his mission on earth, and he's getting ready now to go back to heaven. This is what he says in John 17, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In other words, the same mission the Father gave to the Son, the Son now gives to the church. And he also promises divine enablement and cooperation. In the passage that we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice, I am with you. The church cooperates with Jesus Christ in building his church as she follows the directions that he lays out. So here's a working principle that we could derive from these passages. Because the general purpose of the local church is to continue the ministry of Christ on earth in association with him through his word, we could say, its objectives and activities must be planned for the specific purpose of fulfilling that ministry. Now this means that the local church must not therefore be involved in any kind of work or activity that does not receive both its commission and sanction from the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. As the head of the church, he must be the only director of its actions. Doing things his way guarantees spiritual growth the way he wants it to happen. We plan, we may water, but it is Jesus Christ, the head of the church, who gives the increase. And one of the amazing things about the increase, this increase takes place when we are asleep. That's what he teaches in the parables. He says, while we're asleep, the plan grows. We have nothing to do with the growth, with the actual growth. We water, we plant, but the increase comes from God himself. Sometimes that is slow, sometimes it is quick, but it is always by God himself. And we have nothing to do with it. We cannot manipulate it. We cannot work things out so many ways, so we haven't increased. The kind of growth that God wants is a growth that comes from him and him alone and not a human-motivated growth. Now, but secondly, it's something that is called the ultimate purpose, and that is to glorify the triune God. Again, let's go to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. In John 17, 1, it says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. In John 17, 4, he says again, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, we know he finished his part, but our part still continues. In John 12, he says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Listen to John 13, 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Once again, in John 14, 13, 
I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Now, when you read the Scriptures, you cannot escape the fact that Jesus Christ was consumed with one passion while on earth, and that was what? To glorify the Father. We could say to glorify the triune God. That was Jesus' overall purpose for coming to earth. Now he tells us that this must also be our overall passion on earth, and that is to glorify the Father by fulfilling his mandate, his mission to earth. So we can conclude it by saying this, the local church achieved its ultimate purpose of glorifying God when it properly associates itself with him in the completion of his earthly ministry. We cannot accomplish what he has given us to accomplish unless we follow his directions. But there's a third aspect to this threefold purpose of the church, and that is to evangelize the lost and equip believers to become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Bill Hybels says they're doing good, almost perfect in that area of evangelizing. But when it comes to making disciples, they're not doing good at all. Here's the example of Jesus Christ again. Jesus had a twofold ministry when he was on earth, redemptive or evangelistic. Listen to the word of God, Luke 19:10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 2 Corinthians 5:21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's why Jesus could say, I have completed the task that you gave me to do. Because he, on the cross, procured salvation, but he also proclaimed salvation. Now, keep this in mind. Only he could accomplish the, the procuring of salvation. We could not do that. Only Jesus Christ could do that. The proclamation, though, of his finished work, he leaves to us to accomplish through his body, the church. Because, and we must emphasize this because I think we lose sight of this fact. We are Christ's body on earth, and we are left here to complete his purpose as the head of the church in heaven. We have to get away from the idea that the church is only an institution, a club where people come together and enjoy themselves and so on. That's not for the church. People have a wrong idea. They say that the church is for sinners. That is not true. The church are for people who have been saved by the grace of God and is now being equipped in order to become more Christ-like. This is something we will talk about as we go on. Look at Ephesians 1.22, talking about the church as his body. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body. Notice now, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We are here to complete what Jesus Christ came to do. We are here to complete his ministry on earth that was assigned to him by the Father. 
But not only was Jesus involved in a redemptive evangelistic ministry, he was also a disciple maker. Let's look at some scriptures again. Mark 3, verse 13. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. Notice that. Those whom he himself wanted. And notice, they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. If you look at this carefully, you will see that this is actually the process of discipleship in a nutshell. And we will develop this in later messages. Jesus modeled or patterned the process of discipling for us to follow. But now here's a principle that is often overlooked when we looked at discipleship. Only committed believers are called true disciples in the word of God. Listen again carefully to Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, notice, who had believed him, if, this is a conditional statement, if you abide in my word, then, here's the result, you are truly disciples of mine. But remember, notice now, you're only truly disciples of mine if you abide in the word, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus, our master disciple maker, teaches us that there are progressive levels or, phrase, or phases of discipleship in the word of God. This is a very important thing for us to look at this morning. First, not all who call themselves disciples are true disciples of Jesus Christ. They could be what Dr. Pentecost calls a professing disciples who are curious but not saved. Look at John chapter 6, verse 60. He says, many therefore of his disciples, notice they're called his disciples, Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? Now just drop down a couple of verses, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. He's saying that some of those who were his disciples did not actually believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John, let's look at that passage again. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is his difficult statement, who can listen to it? Then Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. My point is this. The Holy Spirit here clearly says that there were people who called themselves disciples, in fact, who were called disciples by others, who did not really believe in him. They were professing or curious disciples, but they were not true disciples. They were not saved at all. We have that still going on today, especially in this so-called Christian country. Not everybody who calls themselves Christian is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. No matter how many times they say it, no matter how many times they become a member of a church, but they can only be professing Christians but not possessing ones. Now, notice what happened to these so-called disciples in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples, notice they still call his disciples, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were called disciples. They were called his disciples. Because things got tough, they walked away. That still happens today. Whenever Christians realize that it takes sometimes persecution, suffering, hardships in the Christian life, they walk away. 
when they realize that there are disciplines in the Christian lives that must be followed, they don't want to do it. So as long as they're fun and frolicking in the church, all, that's fine. But when it comes down to doing things that a true disciple is supposed to do, they walk away. Now compare this to what John says in, chapter, in 1 John 2 verse 11. This begins, I'm sorry, John chapter 2 verse 11. The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The belief was based on their glimpse, their understanding of the glory in Jesus Christ. And as I said, there are undoubtedly many who fit description in the local church today. That's why Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves to see if we really are in the faith. Now, when you listen to the rest of the table at Hybels, you'll find he says that he have people who come and they do all kinds of things. They become involved in the activities. And they, he found out that they believed that because they were doing these activities, that made them Christians. That made them feel as though they were growing in, as a Christian simply because they were going through some activity. And these were one of the things that Heibel says he has to correct. But now there's a second level of discipleship described in these verses. Look at verse uh, 30, chapter 8, verse 30. He called these a possessing disciple is saved but not committed. A professing disciple, he is curious, he's not saved at all. A possessing disciple is saved but not committed. Verse 30 of chapter 8. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. In other words, some of those curious disciples did in fact become saved disciples. But Jesus' words next shows that there was an even another level of discipleship to achieve as well, not simply believing him. From professing to possessing is good. But Jesus says there's still a third stage, and that is what he's, that is what he's concerned with in developing in the church. And that's what we would call a progressing disciple, saved and committed. A true disciple, verse 8, verse Verse 31 of chapter 8. Jesus there was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, he's talking to those who says, Jesus, I'm for you, I'm following you. Today we'll say, I'm saved. This is what he says to them. Good. However, if you abide in my word, here's the condition, then you are truly disciples of mine. In other words, all right, you say you're following me, I will know that when I see that you abide in my word. Now, abide means to obey, means to do what Jesus says. He says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Abiding in or obeying the words of Christ is a mark of a true disciple, of a genuine disciple or a committed disciple. This was Jesus' objective on earth, to make true or mature disciples, those who were committed to obeying his teachings as the master disciple maker. Now, as we'll see in a moment, from the perspective of the epistles, Jesus' goal was to lead those who believed in him to spiritual maturity. As the master teacher, he was also the master disciple maker. But when we come to the epistles, we do not have another mention of the term disciple. There's no mention of disciple or discipleship in the epistles. It all has to do with growing in Christ and maturing in Christ. And we'll see some marks of a true disciple in a few moments.